Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Blake Reed, Associate Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Samuelson Glushko Technology Law and Policy Clinic at the University of Colorado Law School. We will discuss his article, Internet Accessibility. So welcome to the podcast, Blake. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, my, the pleasure's all mine. Um, and I thought your your paper was a really interesting and um, sort of thoughtful intervention into how we ought to think kind of structurally about uh, sort of applying the ADA and concepts of accessibility in in an internet context. But I was wondering if you could start a little more generally for people who may not be so familiar with the ADA and how it goes about promoting accessibility. So so what is the ADA and, and, and where did it come from? Sure. So the ADA has its roots actually um, back in the kind of the tail end of the Reagan years. It, it was enacted in, in 1990, but, but sort of started um, or the movement toward it started in the Reagan administration. And the big idea was for um, it actually started with veterans uh, coming home and uh, having having combat injuries of various sorts and basically running into all sorts of discrimination in society or basically an, an inability um, to, to sort of integrate and, and the, the Reagan administration and then the George H.W. Bush administration um, started to to dig into that. And um, so is this interesting, you know, and obviously disability um, issues and, and uh, discrimination against people with disabilities has, has been around um, for long, long before that. So there is sort of this coming together of, of Republican and, and Democratic policymakers um, over, over the, how, to, um, how to make sure that people with disabilities, particularly including veterans with disabilities, have access to society. And so there was three main approaches that the ADA took, or, or maybe four, depending on how you want to count it. And the first one is discrimination in places of employment. And so Title I of the ADA says you can't discriminate against employees with disabilities. Um, and then Title II of the ADA is all about state and local government. So the big idea was um, if you're running a government program or service, you can't discriminate against people with disabilities. Um, and then the, the big one that, that most people are familiar with, and if you've read about this in the, in the newspaper, you've, you've probably read about Title III of the ADA, and it says places of public accommodation have got to be accessible. Um, and the big idea there is, you know, when you're going around um, in the built world, you're going in and out of stores, you're going in and out of restaurants and bars and that sort of thing. Um, those places have got to be accessible. And so when people think about things like wheelchair ramps and, um, you know, accessible bathroom stalls and that sort of thing, um, that's sort of the, 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 big, uh, the big part of the ADA was saying, the, the built world that people go into has to be built in an accessible way. And if it's not built that way under certain circumstances, it's got to be retrofitted to be accessible to people with disabilities. So that's sort of where it, where it starts. Okay. So I think implicit in that is the recognition that the ADA was conceptualized and passed before sort of the 
internet and virtual spaces were were really a thing. H- how was the ADA conceptualized when it was created, and how does that conceptualization translate to kind of a non physical virtual world? Well, it's an interesting question because it's one of these laws that would you know is sort of a foundational. Uh, approach to how we think about society that was passed right before the commercial internet took off, right? So, you know, 1990, the, the, the internet was just beginning to take off and it was not, it was kind of a, a, a gleam in, in Tim Berners-Lee's eyes. And so the, you know, the ADA was drafted without the internet in, in mind. Um, and it's, so there's a couple of different views, right? So you look at the language of the ADA, and it talks specifically about places of public accommodation, and that's some language that has has its roots back in the the Civil Rights Act. Um, and a, a lot of people look at that and say, well, it's talking about the built physical world. It's talking about building. It's it's talking about um, you know places that people go to and and visit as places of public accommodation. And I think there's a countervailing school of thought, which is, no, the Title III of the ADA is all about making society acceptable or accessible, however that might look, um, and that the ADA actually had technology in mind. And there's some, some bits of the legislative history of the ADA that sort of say, we anticipate new technology is going to evolve and change how society works. Although I don't think they had the, the transformations that the internet uh, uh, would, would bring specifically in mind. Um, and that, that title three is really intended to be this really broad, um, uh, this really broad tool to take whatever we sort of think of as society and make that accessible. And so those are the competing views. And, you know, in the, in the 1990s, as the Internet starts to come into being, that's where you start seeing people debate and say, well, the Internet is starting to become this integral part of society. Is this a place in the ADA's parlance? Is this something that we need to make accessible? Or is this something sort of different um, that, that was beyond the scope of what the, what the ADA was intended to cover? In, in your paper, you spend a lot of time talking about the concept of place as sort of a metaphor and how that metaphor is used uh, or has been used to think about translating sort of traditional or the kind of the original concepts of the ADA as applying to physical spaces, uh, to applying in, in virtual spaces or, or over, over the, in an internet context. Um, in what ways do you think that place metaphor has been helpful? And are there ways in which it's been unhelpful in terms of promoting accessibility? Yeah. So in a doctrinal sense, the word place features really prominently in Title III of the ADA. So I think from the early days of the commercial internet, disability advocates, who, by the way, and maybe we should spend a second talking about the accessibility problems that arise online, and they can range anywhere from videos being shown without closed captions to websites being architected in a way that they're incompatible with screen readers that that blind people use to to read the the text of a website aloud and navigate around it um, using a keyboard um, 
that that metaphor of place is embedded right in the text of Title III, right? It's a place of public accommodation. And so right from the jump, as, as disability advocates are trying to apply the ADA to the Internet, this question of, well, how do we conceptualize the Internet as a place becomes front and center. And so that draws a lot of attention to, well, is the Internet a place? Let's think about um, how we can conceive of the Internet as a place. And so we think uh, you start to see a, a lot of language around, well, the Internet is cyberspace, right? It's, or, or it's a cyber place and people are going out and visiting websites, right? And you sort of get this idea of there being a virtual world. And then, you know, through the, the early parts of the 2000s, we start to see things that make this metaphor even more literal, right? We have like second life, you know, it's a virtual world that you literally have an avatar that you go, um, you go walk around in, in virtual reality and all of that, that sort of stuff. And so we start to really zero in on this idea that we need to argue that the internet is a place that people inhabit and people go, go around. And that ends up playing out in, in litigation. Um, because disability advocates sort of say, well, what's the what's the place where we can, or what's the area of the internet that we can most easily conceptualize as a place? Um, and the easiest thing on the internet to conceptualize as a place is a website, right? And that's how we talk about websites. We go visit websites. They're they're sort of the the buildings or the businesses of the of the internet. And so that metaphor kind of carries into litigation and and that's that's basically overtaken um, how the ADA has been 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 sort of litigated in the internet over the last 20 years is all these lawsuits about websites, right? So does Title III of the ADA apply to websites? And then we've got this this big circuit split that I can I can talk a little bit more about. Sure, and maybe you could do that in in the context of this really interesting distinction that you make in your paper, and I think deploy really cleverly in sort of thinking about kind of uh, regulation and accessibility on a kind of more macro level when it comes to the internet, which is this distinction between internal and external perspectives that you draw from more incur among, among other people. I was wondering if you'd explain what that distinction is and how it helps, you know, use the place metaphor in a different or perhaps kind of more holistic way. Yeah, so right around the same time, the um, these web accessibility lawsuits are starting to heat up. Internet law scholars are having this much broader conversation about the placeness of the internet, and and it turns out that this, you know, how we how we use treat the internet um, in this place metaphor has consequences not just under disability law, but under all sorts of, uh, of different laws. And we see this divide erupting in between different camps of internet scholars about different perspectives that you can take on the internet. And so you mentioned Oren Kerr, who sort of famously articulates this dichotomy, and he says, well, there's one way to look at the internet, and that's, that's through an internal perspective, and that's sort of virtual reality Let's put ourselves in the perspective 
of the user. What is their experience of the internet? They experience it as cyberspace going into this place and they, you know, they, they sort of experience it as this integrated whole, if you will. Then on the other hand, you have this other perspective called the external perspective, which sort of says, no, 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 the internet is not a metaphysical place. When we get on the internet, we are sitting down in a chair in an office with a keyboard in front of us. We're typing, um, typing out commands, and those are going into a computer with a microprocessor. And that computer is hooked up to a network cable, and it translates what our commands into ones and zeros and zips them across this network, and they're received at the other end. And so really the Internet is just this pile of computers and wires and keyboards and, you know, and bits. And that's really the way that you ought to conceptualize um, what the internet is. And, and one of my favorite examples that, that Oren uses to, to illustrate this is he talks about this case uh, involving a bomb threat. So a guy is, and I'm going to get the details a little bit wrong, but the guy is uh, has a girlfriend in high school and he wants his girlfriend to be able to get out of class so they can go hang out. Um, and so he texts, sends a text to some mutual friend of theirs with a bomb threat in it. And he uses AOL instant messenger and the feds come in and charge him with transmitting an interstate bomb threat. And the guy says, well, wait a second. You know, I just texted my friend three miles away right across town. That didn't cross state lines. And so from his perspective, you know, that's not an interstate communication. He's just um, going going right across town. And the feds say, no, 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 um, you're using AOL Instant Messenger and its servers are located in some other state. And so for the message to get to your friend, you sent it to AOL servers and they sent along your friend and that ended up crossing state lines. Right. So that's kind of a, a, a so. The, the guy is taking the internal perspective. The feds are taking the external perspective. And it turns out which perspective you take really matters in terms of the analysis, right? Either that's an interstate bomb threat or, or it isn't. So it's, it's sort of dispositive. And so internet law scholars got into this enormous debate about which of these perspectives is the right perspective um, to take on the, on the internet. That's fascinating. And it actually helps me understand kind of better what's going on in your paper, because I feel like you're actually using that distinction in a very different and in some ways, I think more productive kind of way. I mean, it, it struck me that like that internal perspective is critical to understanding in a in a disability context when there's an accessibility problem in other words you can't know whether or not somebody's going having trouble accessing what they ought to be able to access on the internet without taking an internal perspective of you know their experience of trying to use the the system but it, then it seems like in order from a regulatory standpoint or from, from a perspective of fixing the problem, it, it seems that y you're suggesting in the paper that it's really critical to look at it from an external perspective as well, because only by thinking about the different layers or relationships between, you know, different parts of the internet and how they work together, can we practically think about actually having efficient solutions to some of these problems? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the way this debate has played out in 
in the web accessibility context is we've got a circuit split where some courts take an internal perspective and say, you know, a place of public accommodation under Title III, well, that can be a website because a user experiences that as a place. Or, you know, the ADA is really all about making society accessible and websites are sort of a, a, an important and salient part of that. And so the fact that there's not a physical location doesn't really matter, right? And so you see courts in, in the First Circuit, especially in, in the Second and the Seventh, to some extent, taking that perspective. And then you see courts in other circuits taking this external perspective and saying, well, no, we when we're talking about places, we're talking about some place in the world, right? We're talking about a building. And we are either going to not apply that to, to websites at all because they're just, you know, sitting on a computer somewhere um, or in the approach the ninth and the 11th circuits takes, we're going to require that there be some connection, some nexus between a website and a physical building, right? So the classic case or the one that just came out is um, the Domino's pizza case, right? Where Domino's pizza's website is covered, but only because there is a physical Domino's location that if you go order your pizza, um, you know, it's going to print out a little ticket in, in, in Domino's and they're going to make a pizza that's going to come out of the oven and then they're going to deliver it to your house, right? So as a doctrinal matter, this internal and external perspective has been, been sort of the battle um, that plays out. But what I try to do in the paper is get beyond that and say, well, you know, there's actually this generation of disability law scholars that are saying an internal perspective is really important, normatively speaking, because it recognizes that um, that accessibility is all about how the person with a disability experiences the Internet. Right. And we really need to have this normative, you know, understanding um, of, of that experience so that when we think about, you know, how to make society accessible, we do it with how the person experiences it in mind. And so there's a lot of scholarship that sort of is dedicated to developing that view. And the contribution I try and make in this paper is I come along in the spirit of like Brett Frischman has made this argument, Julie Cohen and others and say, well, we can supplement that internal perspective and understand that it's it's normatively important to, to understand that with an external perspective that says the Internet really is this complicated mix of, of stuff, right? It is a bunch of servers and computers and networks and, you know, bits that um, and if we want to serve the, um, the goals of the, the person with a disability to be able to access the applications and the content and the devices that make up the network, we need to think about it in a more you know, granular and and broad way, right? We need to understand that um, when you're sitting down accessing a website, you're accessing content that might have been uploaded by a user to a platform. And that platform is serving uh, up the website, you know, using standards that have been developed by international standard setting bodies. It's being rendered in a browser that's developed by someone else. It's being shown on a device or, you know, a tablet or a, a laptop that's been developed by yet someone other than that. Um, and it's being delivered over a network that's also being uh, being operated by someone else. And there can be accessibility problems that actually crop up 
at each of those parts of the internet. And so in order to serve this normative goal of making the experience for the user with a, a disability accessible and, 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 and work for them, we need to take a, we need to have a little bit of an external understanding of how the internet works. So maybe you could talk about that in relation to a particular problem to make it a little more concrete, because in the paper, you talk about kind of this kind of almost like frame based thinking of how the Internet works, like sort of differing lever levels of sort of uh, of. I don't, I don't want to say generality or something along, along those lines. It's like the experience is mediated by a set of, of norms or kind of technical norms or specifications, which is mediated by the, you know, the sort of physical technology that's being used and so on and so forth. Um, how do those problems play out in particular contexts? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to give an example of that. So I was looking, looking last week. I don't know if you heard about the um, the news story about Fluffy the cat, who's the got frozen in a snowbank for seven hours in Montana, and then got miraculously brought back to life um, by these vets. So, you know, Fluffy has has eight lives, um, and so there are all sorts of news stories proliferating about Fluffy and all sorts of video going around. So I I, I hopped on. I, I was just looking for a video of uh, of Fluffy, and one of the first ones that popped up um, was on Yahoo News. And I, I noticed, so there's this, it's this video kind of telling the story of Fluffy um, that pops up in Yahoo's video feed. And I noticed it doesn't have the captions. It doesn't have a little button that says close captions or CC, if you've probably seen on, uh, on web players. And so if you're someone who's deaf or hard of hearing and you run into that, basically this video is going to be inaccessible to you. You're not going to be able to, um, you're not going to be able to understand what the, the person is saying who's narrating the story. And so that's a pretty classic um, internet accessibility problem. So if you take an internal perspective on that, as a user, you went to Yahoo and the video wasn't accessible. And the analysis kind of stops there, right? And, and, and a lot of folks say, well, that's Yahoo's fault, right? It must be a problem um, with Yahoo and we need to have some sort of legal remedy against Yahoo to fix it. But if you take an external perspective and you sort of think about, well, what's actually going on here? You go a little bit deeper. So Yahoo actually, I, I looked into this video it turns out that Yahoo is actually embedding and sort of streaming this video from Facebook. This video is originally posted on Facebook. So it could be that Facebook, in implementing its video player, um, didn't add the closed caption button, didn't include the, the architecture in its video system to be able to support it. Could be that ABC, this is a, a national ABC story, I think it's on Good Morning America or something like that. So ABC actually uploaded the video. And the problem could be um, that ABC forgot to add captions to it or didn't add captions to it. Or perhaps they added captions on television when the, when the show aired in the first place. But when they clipped the video to put it on their Facebook page, they somehow didn't get the captions to go along for the ride, right? So the captions could have gotten lost there. Um, then the, the video is playing in, I, I was looking at it in Google Chrome, um, and it turns out that the, the, 
the video player has got to interact with Google Chrome in order to, to render the caption controls the right way. And you actually might get a different result if you open the video in, say, Safari or Firefox, right? So the video player might have some example and, or some role in it. And the video or the, the browser in turn has got to interact with the operating system um, on your laptop or your tablet, right? So it could be a problem with um, Apple's application programming interface. And then you're watching this video over an internet connection, right? So I was, I was watching it um, on Xfinity at my house. And it turns out that lots of ISPs have what are called content delivery network systems that substitute um, different resolution versions of videos to sort of conserve bandwidth. And maybe it's the case that Comcast substituted the video um, in a way that corrupted the caption file. Right. And and so if you take an internal perspective, you look at it and you say, well, this is just Yahoo's fault that this fluffy the cat video didn't show the captions. But if you take this external perspective, you identify something like six or seven different places where the problem could have occurred. And maybe it's more than one place. And that has legal consequences. Right. Because if you go to Yahoo and you say, hey, um, you need to make this video accessible. Their first response is going to say, well, we don't have anything to do with this video. We're just sort of, you know, framing it on our site and pulling it in from, from somewhere else. Um, and how do you, how do you get to the other actors? You kind of don't have the, the tools to figure that out. But if you take this external perspective and understand there's all these other actors involved in the delivery of this video, it turns out there's actually a whole bunch of rules that the FCC and other agencies apply um, in this context that might actually be being broken here. And so some kind of informal complaint or dispute resolution at the FCC might actually be the way to fix this. And so that's kind of an example that I that I that I, I tease out to, to sort of show you know, sometimes the solution to these problems is not filing a Title III lawsuit, but it's um, it's getting on the phone with a, a you know a consumer protection specialist at the, or an enforcement specialist at the FCC and basically trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. It's almost kind of legal tech support, if that if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by the the way in which you sort of seem to suggest that thinking more kind of abstractly about like standard setting and how the sort of the internet toolkits that people use to kind of fashion the quote unquote buildings, as it were, websites and so on, are as important or, you know, equally important, maybe even more important in some ways than focusing on the the kind of the websites themselves in terms of fixing problems. And so far as, you know, you can kind of structurally have a much bigger impact if you think about kind of minimizing accessibility issues or maximizing accessibility likelihood um, at that kind of macro level. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you think about just websites as an example, and you think how many websites are out there, and I mean, it's in the order of billions or, you know, probably tens or hundreds of billions, I'm not sure. Um, but the idea of going in, filing a lawsuit in federal court against the proprietor of every single website on the internet to 
make it accessible to every person with every type of disability. It's kind of like the same problem that the content industry was facing in the mid 2000s when they were trying to cut down on uh, on file sharing by, um, you know, and, and filing copyright lawsuits against um, individual infringers. When it's happening at such a broad scale, when the problem is so broad, trying to sort of fix it one thing at a time is, is a difficult approach. But one of the things I talk about in the paper is I say, well, look, you know, what are the common, you know, elements of, of these billions? of websites. Well, you know, a significant proportion of the websites on the internet are built on platforms like WordPress and and, uh, Squarespace and that sort of thing. And there's actually not been any, you know, Title III litigation against any of those platforms. But it turns out those platforms um, potentially have some, some problems with how they do accessibility, right? And they also present authoring tools to people making their own websites that can, you know, do either a good job or not such a good job nudging people towards making their content accessible, right? And so I started to think about, well, who are the intermediaries? Who are the platforms on the internet that, you know, have a lot of control over what sort of content gets generated? And it turns out little nudges on those platforms, even if they're, you know, they don't seem like a big deal, can be a really, really huge contributor to accessibility. So I was thinking about um, if you use use Instagram, you've seen um, recently that they've added a feature that allows you to add a text description of your picture, which I think... most people is sort of like, huh, why is Instagram asking us to do this? And the answer is, well, it's all about making Instagram accessible to blind and visually impaired people. And if you can nudge the people that are uploading millions and millions of pictures to Instagram to take a few seconds every time they upload a picture and and try to make it accessible, that's going to have a way bigger impact than you could ever have if you tried to, I don't know, go sue every user on Instagram under Title III. And so that's kind of the goal of the paper is to, to get disability advocates and disability scholars thinking about where can we position these interventions so that they're going to have maximal effect and they're going to lead people um, to, to make the content and the applications that they put on the Internet accessible. So, Blake, I know that this paper grew out of some of your policy-oriented work, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that work and sort of how it affected or influenced the ideas you're discussing in this paper. Yeah, so as a, I'm actually a, a clinician, and and I run a, a tech law and policy clinic. Um, and when I got started as a as a teaching fellow back in in Georgetown um, at, at one of the clinics at, at Georgetown back in the early part of the 2010s, um, the first project that landed on my desk. Um, was this rulemaking at the Federal Communications Commission um, about making internet-delivered video accessible um, through the provision of closed captions? And I, you know, when I when I started this work, I, I never sort of thought about these issues and never never encountered them. Um, but through the clinic, I, I I got to know and 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 work closely with a coalition of deaf and hard of hearing consumer groups on these issues. And they basically were were all about implementing the um, there's a digital update to the ADA that a lot of people are not familiar with called the uh, 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act that President Obama signed into law in 2010. And so I spent the first 
five or six years of my my clinical career basically working through the implementation of the CVA, which is basically the FCC has to, you know, run all these advisory committees and do all these rulemakings and basically create these really detailed technical rules for um, how we do things like show closed captions and, sh- uh, you know, play back audio description and make the user interfaces of video players accessible. I, one, one of my favorite ones is we worked on the, uh, the requirements to uh, make the remote controls for cable set-top boxes accessible. So we worked on on a lot of things like that. And one of the things I, I noticed in doing that work is there are a lot of uh, a lot of disability advocates that were sort of skeptical and didn't didn't really understand or buy into what was happening at the FCC because it wasn't work that is happening under the ADA. Um, and then I think likewise, you know, working at the FCC and working in telecommunications law, I occasionally interact with a lot of internet law scholars that are like, wait, what is this disability thing? You know, isn't that the, the, the web uh, lawsuits that are happening under the ADA? What, what are you talking about all this, this FCC stuff? And so part of this paper was born out of a desire to say, hey, there's actually this really rich and complicated um, kind of gooey center between um, internet law and disability law that's, you know, bigger than, than the ADA's application to websites um, that, you know... It, would make it worthwhile for disability lawyers and disability scholars to engage with what internet lawyers and internet scholars are doing and vice versa for internet law scholars and and, and internet lawyers to take really seriously what's happening um, with digital accessibility. And so this paper is kind of an effort to, to crystallize those, those years of work and say, there's actually a really important kind of unexplored body of law at the, at the intersection of these, these two areas. And, And so I tried to try, to sort of uh, sketch that out in addition to all the stuff about perspectives and, and all of that. Yeah. So, so Blake, I know that, that, you know, there's a lot of discussion of this, uh, this happening right now at the FCC and it's a conversation that you're, that you're personally involved in. I was wondering if you could just spend a couple minutes in, in wrapping it up uh, talking about kind of where you think or hope that conversation is going to go in the near future? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because we're in this strange political time under, under President Trump. And, um, you know, this is not a time in which the FCC has been particularly aggressive in adopting regulatory actions, generally speaking. Um, and so a, a lot of the work that we're trying to do right now is, to preserve the gains that we built up for consumers with disabilities um, during during President Obama's tenure, and and particularly during the the tenure of Tom Wheeler, who is the FCC chairman um, I, I, under under President Obama, and really is you know ought to be hailed as a as a as a hero um, for for disability rights and the amount of uh, the amount of work that and and resources and political capital that that Tom expended um, on these various initiatives at the FCC is pretty amazing. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a different, it's a different time uh, un- under President Trump. And I think one of the things we're, we're just, we're just sort of waiting to see 
um, what what happens in the next two years and, and, and what will happen with the, the next round of elections. Um, and in the meantime, I think we're, we're also trying to engage with some of the bigger conversations that are happening around Internet law. Right. So think a lot about privacy. So think about the intersection of privacy and disability. Um, how do we implement some of these um, these accessibility fe- features that require um personalization for people with disabilities. How do we implement those um, in a privacy protected way? Um, we're engaged in conversations around copyright law, right? That, you know, it looks like a lot of third parties um, will need to intervene with accessibility efforts of various sorts. So how do we calibrate exceptions and limitations and copyright law to facilitate that? Some really cool stuff happening with machine learning and artificial intelligence where we're doing things like automated closed captions and automated video description or audio description. Um, and how do we calibrate copyright law to allow those sorts of things? And then, you know, there's this big conversation happening about how do we divvy up responsibility um, with the really big platforms, the Googles and Facebooks and YouTubes and so forth of the world between those platforms and their users? How do we, you know, how are we going to hold those platforms accountable for what happens on them? Um, And so we're trying to think about how does um, accessibility become part of those conversations? Because, you know, as I I said, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of action on the part of platforms um, to, to, to make make stuff accessible online. So those are some of the things we're thinking about, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting and, and complicated uh, political time. So um, I, I, I'd love to hear your predictions because the next, the next two years will be, uh, will, will be a wild ride, I'm sure. Great. Well, I can only wish you the best of luck in this important uh, enterprise. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Blake. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. of history believing in today he's america's automobile man marching at the head of the band he's leading the way to a brighter today and he's doing all 